Welcome to Escrow Out Loud, the SF real estate podcast from Jackson Fuller Real Estate, experts on San Francisco real estate since 2002. Podcast notes with links available at jacksonfuller.com slash podcast. Hi, I'm Matt Fuller, broker for Jackson Fuller Real Estate. My guest today is Brett Gladstone of Goldstein, Gelman, Malbastad, Harris, and McSparren. He's been a San Francisco real estate attorney for over 35 years and regularly writes and lectures on local real estate laws and issues, including condo law, and advises his clients on land development and real estate transactions throughout the Bay Area. And he's been a guest on our show before to talk about other legislation. So welcome back to the show, Mr. Gladstone. Thank you and Happy New Year. Absolutely. Like the last few years, starting off rather interesting. <laughs> so, and unlike other years, we've got a, a new law to talk about that went into effect on January 1st, 2022. And that law is SB9, as in S as in Sam, B as in boy, the number nine. And it was authored by, as I understand it, State Senator President Pro Tem Tony Atkins, who is from the San Diego part of the state and then by State Senator Scott Weiner, who is from the Bay Area in San Francisco. Correct. So what can you tell us about SB9? I did a little research, as they say these days, and there's a lot of information and misinformation about it out there. Maybe you could kind of start us all off with an overview of what it is. Sure. Well, SB9, similar to legislation in the last couple of years about accessory dwelling units, is an attempt to solve the housing crisis in California, which is quite severe. And it does it by allowing additional units to be built where single-family zoning exists in the state. Some people have said it's the end of single-family zoning as we know it. There are some exceptions where single-family zoning will still apply, but I'll be speaking about those. So there's two parts to SB9. One part simply says that wherever you have single-family home zoning throughout the state, one can build two units. You can add to uh, what's there or build two from scratch. The other part of it allows people to do lot splits of their lots in situations where local laws may not allow them. For example, local laws may require the lots be 2,500 square feet or local laws may require that you get a variance to deal with some of the uh, negative effects potentially affecting neighbors. Those local requirements are preempted. And now I'll go into some more details about those two different parts. First of all, what's important to know is that these are considered ministerial approvals, which means that cities cannot put these approvals in front of the planning commission for approval. They have to be approved by staff if they meet the requirements. Also, these projects put together under this are not subject to the California Environmental Quality Act, which is used so often for appeals by neighbors. So it's quite a interesting opportunity for homeowners and developers. When you create a second unit on a lot, you cannot demolish more than 25% of the exterior walls. That's one limitation. And when you create new lots, there are several limitations. One is that each new lot must be 1,200 square feet. 
whereas in many oceans of the state, they have to be 2,500 square feet or larger. Also, there's a 60-40 rule that one parcel can be 60% of the former larger parcel, but it can't be any more. Likewise, a smaller parcel can be no less than 40% of what the original parcel was. Also, you can't do a series of these. You can't do a lot split under this and then complete it and then do another split of the lots that you have created. And nor can you create next door lots by doing this next door to a lot where you've done it before. There are some general conditions and limitations of both portions of this law. Many tenant protections apply, which I'll deal with in a minute. And the law does not apply to historic districts, which is a large exception, especially in cities such as San Francisco, which have a great deal of buildings which are more than 45 years old. The law doesn't apply in rural areas or natural hazard zones or in environmentally sensitive zones. And cities can apply objective zoning and subdivision and design standards. The key is what objective is and what subjective is. For example, the city of San Francisco has a number of residential design guidelines, and it indicates it will apply those that are objective. Well, many of us believe that all of them are subjective. <laughs> so it'll be interesting to see which of those the city believes are objective enough to apply to these kind of developments. The localities must allow units of at least 800 square feet, except where that conflicts with setback requirements. And for new structures, there is a four-foot setback requirement from all lot lines. No parking is required where you're within a half mile of a transit node or transit line. And that means in San Francisco, practically speaking, there's no parking requirements for any of these units. Now I want to talk about what the tenant protections are under the law. First of all, you can't demolish any rent-controlled or affordable units. You can't demolish any units occupied by a tenant in the last three years. And you cannot demolish units that have had an Ellis Act eviction within the last 15 years. Once you create these units under SB9, they can't be made into short-term rentals. And where you're doing a lot split as opposed to just adding a second unit on an existing lot, the owner has to sign an affidavit stating that the owner intends to occupy for at least three years. The key is the word intends. Life can change. So that's the basic rule. And there are some theoretical examples I'd like to go over by which you could even create five or six new units on a lot that today is at least 2,500 square feet by using both portions of this law, both the portion allowing a second unit and the portion allowing a lot split. Before I go on to discuss those, perhaps you have a question, Matt. Yes, I kind of want to hear all of these hypothetical pieces, but I want to make sure that I got the gist of this enormous law correctly. So I'm going to say some things back to you. You tell me how good of a listener I've been here. How's that? Sounds good. <laughs> so SB9 basically has two parts. The first part is where you have a single family zoning. You can now have two units there. Correct. 
that's part one. And part two is where local laws don't allow it. You can now likely do lot splits if they meet some requirements. Yes. And then there's kind of this other part that says all of this has to go through ministerial approval, meaning that if it can be approved by staff, it must be approved by staff. And none of this is subject to CEQA. Correct. Okay. So then we get into a bunch of the things that you can't do. And I think the first one was when you're creating the second unit, you can't demolish more than X percent of the existing structure, like 25%. Correct. Okay. So it's not like you can just tear down what's there and start over and build the mega mini mansion or the horror story. Correct. So they're trying to protect the existing structure. Then the next one is in terms of the lot size, there's restrictions in terms of the smallest size. Essentially, the smallest size is set at the state level, not necessarily the local level anymore, correct? Correct. And the state allows as little as 1,200 square foot lots. Okay. And when splitting up a lot, you can't create like a monster lot and a super teeny lot. You've got to, you know, they're aiming for 50-50-ish. The most you can go is 60-40 one way or the other, subject to everything else. And these are not nesting Russian dolls. You cannot split a lot that you split, that you split, that you split. (laughs) So once you've split it, you're done. And uh, I think as I understand the next door part, it's like if a lot splits, the lot next door can't split. So you can't like split next to another lot that's split. Yes. Roughly. Okay. You can't do this in a historic district or it sounds like old buildings over 45 years old. Correct. But not all buildings over 45 years old are historic. They're presumed to be historic if they're 45 years or older and have the original facade. But one can make the case that despite the age, they're not historic. So it doesn't apply to all 45-year-old buildings, but it certainly applies to all buildings of any age in historic districts. So that was exactly my kind of follow-up question is that it applies that we're going to look both at the building and when it was built. And then also if it is in some type of designated historic district at the city, local, state level. Correct. So like the, you know, DeBose Park Triangle Historic District or any of those in the city, obviously it wouldn't apply in those areas. Correct. All right. Obviously, none of this applies to San Francisco, but no rural areas, no hazardous and environmental zones, and no environmentally sensitive zones. And I'm going to assume like the state's got very detailed specifications on what that means. But here's the fun one, right? Cities can apply objective design standards. And it sounds like the arm wrestling is going to come down to the definition of objective. Correct. All right. But cities have to allow units of at least 800 square feet as long as they meet the setback requirements. And the setback requirements are actually stricter than for new construction in San Francisco, which is generally three feet. And for this new structure, it's a four foot setback. Yeah, I can't uh, call if three foot is the case for most of San Francisco for units outside the law. But certainly this law is four feet setbacks, except when you're dealing with a building that's already there, obviously. Gotcha. So, I mean, the point being, you're not going to be able to get any closer than you are to the existing structure next to you. So it's not like you can push your building closer to your lot line. Correct. And if it's within a half mile of transit, a bus stop, whatever it may be, you don't have to provide parking. So you could do this pretty much anywhere in San Francisco without having to provide parking. Correct. And because this is obviously a product of Scott Wiener. In Northern California, there are a whole lot of tenant protections in it, which is great. You cannot demo, I heard, rent-controlled units. 
units occupied by tenants in the last three years, units that have been Ellis Acted in the last 15 years. Or affordable units that are long-term affordable. Gotcha. And then once you do this, those units can never be used as short-term, less than 30-day Verbo Airbnb-style rentals. Right. And you've got to sign an affidavit saying you intend to occupy it as an owner for three years. Well, that affidavit's only required when you're creating units pursuant to a lot split and not when you're adding a second unit to a single-family home lot. So is the idea that like the owner would be required to live in one of those and then assuming, you know, rent or sell off the other one for continue to occupy at least one of them for three years? Correct. But there's no requirement that you have to have been an owner for a set amount of time before you do this. Correct. I think that was everything I managed to jot down. Did I manage to get most of this? Yes, you did. Awesome. So now that I think we've got a little bit of handle on it, I would love to hear about some of these hypothetical examples and how they'll play out in terms of working together within this law and then also interacting with some other laws at the state and local levels like ADUs. So what can you tell us? Well, I'm going to give you three theoretical examples. First, the easiest, where you create a second unit or where there's a single family home or you create two units, a duplex where there's no home on a lot. And you can then add a new unit to the lot with a single family home. Second example, you split the existing lot. You add a new unit to the side that is to the lot with an existing single family home. And you can add a new single family home or duplex on the other side where you've created the other new lot. That's example two. Example three is the most interesting because you could potentially create five or six units out of an empty lot today of 2,500 square feet or a lot today with a single family home. How do you do that? Well, you can add an accessory dwelling unit and a junior accessory dwelling unit to an existing single family home. Then you can split that lot. Then on the new lot, you can build two units, a duplex. And then you could potentially add an ADU to the lot where you've created a duplex, two new units. So if you add all that together, you reach as many as five or six units total. So the folks that help make this law is kind of very like suburban Southern California meets dense Northern California, San Francisco. And it sounds like they're trying to allow you to go really dense if you wanted to and the local urban area allowed it, i.e. San Francisco, but it doesn't force it. And that might not be the scenario that plays out in every city environment. Well, you should know that some cities and towns are trying to avoid SB9. I'm shocked, Brett. (laughs) (laughs) One thing that has started happening is that cities have created more and more historic districts because SB9 can't be used in historic districts. Other cities and San Francisco may be one, will eliminate single-family zoning altogether because you may recall that SB9 can only be used where there's single-family zoning. And there is some discussion in San Francisco, including Supervisor Raphael Mandelman, to bring an ordinance that would eliminate single-family zoning and thus eliminate SB9. It may or may not pass. It's too early to say. It would be an unusual thing for San Francisco to create zoning that allows many more units than currently allowed. 
Never bet against San Francisco supervisors voting against housing. It's ridiculous if it wasn't costing everyone so much money and causing so much pain. I don't know if I want to go too far down this rabbit hole, but didn't Supervisor Rafael Mandelman, District 8 San Francisco, didn't he have some other density proposal for San Francisco? So is he trying to like go around SB9 to get more dense or is he just trying to get around SB9 or do we not know? I don't know what's on his mind exactly. I do know that originally he proposed only creating zoning for four units on corner buildings, corner lots. Then he proposed creating it on all lots, not just corner lots in residential districts. Then I've heard of him and some of his colleagues wanting to eliminate single family zoning everywhere for the purpose of avoiding SB9. There's a lot of negotiations going on, so it's really too early to say which of those may happen, if any. The irony of that is just crazy. Raphael Mendelman is representing the San Francisco Supervisor District that Scott Weiner was once a supervisor in. So exact same housing problems that caused Scott to go to Sacramento and write this law, the gentleman who now occupies the position is trying to nullify. Welcome to San Francisco politics, right? Welcome to San Francisco politics. <laughs> All right. So hopping back to these three examples, what was example one again? And can you take me through how that one would work? In example one, you can put a new duplex, two units on an empty single family home lot, or you can add one new unit to a lot with an existing single family home. Here's my question on example one. So is a new unit like a full on unit? So I could essentially take a single family house in, let's say, the sunset, and I could add a second unit, and then I would have a two-unit building legally? You could have a two-unit building, or you could have a two-unit lot where one building is not on top of the other. Okay. But let's say that they were on top of each other just for access or whatever it might be. So if both units were then owner-occupied for a year, could I apply for condo conversion? Yes, except, of course, there are limits to condo conversions uh, for lots that have been subject to Ellis Act and other evictions. Yeah. And assuming there's some overlap here, because it sounds like if there's been any kind of eviction history, although really we're only talking Ellis Act on SB9, you're not going to be able to do it at least for a period of time or ever. Yeah, that's right. You can create a new unit add to existing unit, and those two can become condos after living there one year without going through any lottery. And then at that point on this theoretical lot in San Francisco, could each of those units add an ADU or a junior ADU, or would the law overall support one more ADU, possibly? Well, the answer is somewhat complex. It depends on whether you're using the state ADU program or the city ADU program. The city ADU program allows a more than one ADU. The state program does not. Gotcha. So the answer is it's really complicated because, of course. Okay. So that's kind of newplex on an empty lot where you used to only be able to build a single family or add one new unit to an existing one. So that was kind of example one, correct? Correct. So what was example two? Example two is where you split an existing lot, which may or may not have housing on it today. And then you add a new unit to the side with an existing single family home, or you add a duplex to the empty lot 
And then you create a new single family home or duplex on the other lot that you've created through the lot split. And that gets us to four or five at that point. It gets you to four. If you are able to add a junior ADU, it can get you higher than that. Junior ADUs can be built within existing buildings. That means, of course, that you can't put a junior ADU until your building is already built. Which sounds simple, but it essentially means you're going to submit of plans that are built without that junior ADU. Then you're going to go back and submit plans with the junior ADU after it's built. Correct. So it's not like you can just do it all at once, even you know you're going to do it eventually, or hopefully you end up doing it eventually. And so it sounds like the maximum we could do here is essentially from single family, what is single family right now, up to six units that are a combination of units, ADUs, and junior ADUs. Correct. I would say four to six. It may be hard to get to six under this example. But on the third example, you were more likely to get to six, correct? Correct. Okay. And then what was the third example again? Well, in this example, you take a lot, and again, the lot has to be 2,500 square feet or more. You add an ADU and a junior ADU to an existing single-family home. Then you split the lot. Then on the new lot, you build a duplex, two units on that new empty lot, and that gives you five units. And if you're able to later create a junior ADU on the newly created lot where there is now a duplex, that can get you to six total units. When you've been in conversations with folks about using SB9, what number are they generally looking to get to? Like double what they've got? Or are they kind of looking to go like, if I could get to five and eventually six, that's what I want to do? What kind of reaction are you seeing to these theoretical abilities? Well, the lots that are most likely to use, or rather the people who are most likely to use SB9 will be simply adding a dwelling unit, and that's not an ADU, to a single family home or building two new units on a lot, which otherwise is in single family zoning districts. There'll be fewer people. There are fewer people talking to me about doing lot splits. Lot splits take much longer. They're more expensive. Their minimum lot size requirements that sometimes cannot be met. For example, each new lot would have to be 1,200 square feet or more. So I'm seeing uh, more people interested in just adding a unit than interested in a lot split. And I think that will continue indefinitely. And in terms of the response, I think I could imagine where most of the fear about this law is coming from. Where are folks that you're speaking with? And obviously, you work out of San Francisco, but you also have colleagues that talk about these things and chatter. Is it folks mainly in cities like urban areas, San Francisco, or is it suburban areas that are where people are actually looking to do projects right now? Some aspects of my legal practice are in San Francisco, but the SB9 portion of my legal practice is throughout the Bay Area because this is state law and it's not city law alone. And I have found more people making inquiries of me from outside San Francisco so far than inside San Francisco. Which was, I think, one of the hopes, but also one of the fears, right? Because the fear campaign driven against this was that we're going to take away your ability to decide what can be built there and ruin your existing neighborhood. Correct? In a nutshell? 
Yes, I think people outside the city are more used to privacy and light and air that they get from single family zoning than people in the city who are used to not having lots of space around their homes and complete privacy. Right. Makes total sense. Sometimes this is a conversation that started when people started leaving the cities for suburbia and, you know, now feel like the cities have come for them in suburbia, (laughs) for lack of a better way to phrase it. That's one way of looking at it. The flip side of that is pretty much everywhere you look in California hasn't built enough housing for the past decade over decade over decade. And we're finally really paying for it. And new housing everywhere is needed at every price point. But that's another rant. So it sounds like this state law interacts also with local laws. It sounds like local places are in the process of trying to figure out how once again they can sidestep a state law instead of implement it. And there is a lot to play out on all of these fronts. Do you think implementation or do you expect, have you heard, implementation of this law is going to be held up in court or it's going to simultaneously play out in court? Or what have you heard about pending lawsuits? I haven't heard of any pending lawsuits, but I have heard an effort out of Southern California to put a ballot measure on the ballot at the end of this year or June of next year that would override SB9, you know, something that we may see. Matt, many people have been asking me a question about how do dwelling units built under SB9 differ from ADUs? And if we had time, I'd be happy to help people respond to that, or I'd be happy to respond to that question, I should say. Yes. And I think that's actually a great question that a lot of people are going to have because we've been throwing around kind of all of these terms like accessory dwelling unit, single family, and they're all kind of similar, but they're different enough that they have different names for a reason. So that would be great. Sure. Well, people can choose between building a new unit under SB9 or building an ADU. The advantages of building an ADU include the following. It's a much more rapid approval. It's often 60 to 120 days, whereas creating units through lot splits under SB9 can take a year. Accessory dwelling units are not limited to being built in single-family zoning districts. However, units created under SB9 are limited to single-family home zoning districts. ADUs are not limited to those lots outside of historic districts. But dwellings created under SB9 cannot be created in historic districts. And with ADUs, there's no intent to occupy document that must be signed by an owner. Whereas in dwellings created under SB9, if they're created pursuant to a lot split, there must be an intent to occupy document signed by an owner. Now, I wanted to mention some advantages of creating dwellings under SB9. First of all, there's a potential for more units to be created than under the ADU laws. Units can be sold as condos after they're created, not just as TICs, whereas accessory dwelling units cannot be sold as condos. Also, new units under SB9 are not subject to rent control, whereas sometimes units created through the ADU law can be under rent control. Dwellings created under SB9 can't be limited to either 800 square feet or 1,200 square feet as they can under the ADU law. And finally, 
dwellings created under SB9 through the demolition of existing units do not require a demolition hearing in front of the San Francisco Planning Commission. Which, as we know, is a fool's errand. Wow, that was a lot. And if I was going to attempt to sum that one up, you have a lot of options to add density if you own property. And depending on what you want to do in terms of adding density and how you want that to be owned or sellable or transferable, there's now more than one option on the table. And it is probably going to pay to consult with somebody to figure out what the best option is because there's no one best option. It really kind of depends on what you want to do, it sounds like. That's correct. Are there other laws? Have we missed anything about SB9 or kind of any other questions you get a lot that we should answer? There are other laws being considered by the San Francisco Board of Supervisors. As I mentioned before, one would allow four units on any lot in the city in a residential zone. One would allow that only on corner lots. One would eliminate all single-family zoning in the city and replace it with two-family, three-family, or four-family zoning. All those are now being considered at the Board of Supervisors and or at the Planning Commission. These new laws are being proposed by different supervisors. We won't know for at least four to six months which of these will move forward and become law. Other than those, there are no other laws under consideration that could affect SB9. Do you know, I mean, obviously in terms of who you're speaking to, but I'm also curious if you know the intended audience. Was this bill thought of and is the process accessible and designed for someone who is, you know, I'm just a homeowner and I want to add density to my lot because I think it's the right thing to do and I could probably make some money in the long term in the process? Or is it more of someone like a smallish developer, I hate to use the word flipper, but a developer who works at more at the, the very local, you know, unit level and not dozens of units with the idea that they're going to buy properties and then go through this process and sell the product? Well, I think the portion of the law that allows an additional unit in single-family home zoning was directed toward residents who are not professional developers. The lot split portion at SB9, I believe, is directed more toward developers because it takes a lot more money to do that. It takes much longer to do that. And um, costs of construction are much larger. And I might say that the rules are much more complex. I would believe it. So, I mean, it really does sound kind of like they tried to make this law accessible to a variety of people. So you don't have to be a developer to do something like this. Part of it is probably very accessible as a property owner of single family, and it can get really complicated from there, which I think is exciting because of all of the laws that I've seen over the last couple of years, at the state level at least, this one by far seems the most accessible to existing property owners. I think that's a good summary. Awesome. So, Brett, I've got one last question for you. I have listened to this podcast, so clearly I've done the research and I'm now an expert. Why would I need you? Or a little bit more seriously, we've talked about accessibility and we've talked about complexity. So when someone engages an attorney such as yourself, what can you help them with and what are unreasonable expectations? Well, I do a number of short consultations to answer questions about whether 
property owner can use SB9 and how they can use it. If they want to go forward, then I help fill out the applications to the city where they're doing four or more units through a lot subdivision. I would help get the approval from the state because if you're selling more than four units, you have to get a state public report. Often there are issues that come up as to easements because you often be creating a rear lot that has no area that is adjacent to a city street or alley. And as a result, the owners of the rear lot will need an easement across the front lot to access the street or alley. And often I'm called on to write cities and counties and particularly their planning departments to get them to back off on positions where they don't allow SB9 approvals or ADU approvals. The law is very complex, and I find city and staff members to not understand them. And of course, many have a bias against allowing additional density. And there's very few bureaucrats that get fired for saying no, which is always frustrating. That's a very good point. So it sounds like there are a ton of valuable resources and reasons to engage with you, your firm, G3MH, an attorney in general, if you're considering doing something to your property around density, adding units, be that SB9, ADU, junior ADU, kind of all of those pieces. And correct me if I'm wrong, but the website is still G3MH.com? Correct. Awesome. And is the phone still 415-673-5600? Correct. Awesome. And I know you mentioned that you do offer short consultations. So if you've been listening to this podcast and you're like, hey, maybe this applies to me, don't hesitate to reach out to Brett Gladstone. He is a super sharp land attorney in San Francisco and across the Bay Area who's been doing this for a very long time. And I can tell you that you do not survive in San Francisco real estate for a very long time if you don't know what you're doing. Thanks, Matt. I appreciate a chance to discuss this. Absolutely. Thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to come on and chat with us about SB9. And looking forward to uh, chatting with you again, hopefully sometime in the future about whatever is new, because I'm sure there'll be something new. You've been listening to Escrow Out Loud, the SF real estate podcast from Jackson Fuller Real Estate experts on San Francisco real estate since 2002. Podcast notes with links available at jacksonfully.com slash podcast.